wisdom literature. And uh, I realized pretty quickly, like A, super important, right? Self-discipline is a huge part of our faith. And B, snooze fest, so boring, so boring. Uh, and I, I was talking to my small group about this, and they were very kind. They all were like, no, 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 Greg, it's going to be awesome. You're going to do great. You're going to spice it up. It's so important. It's a critical part of our faith. And like I said, they're right, very important, and they were very, very kind. But I couldn't get over kind of the boredom of it. And to <laughs> one more um, kind of example of this, one of my friends in small group said in a really uh, enthusiastic way, she said, have you read um, this book by Eugene Peterson? It's called A Long Walk in the Same Direction. And I thought, nope. Um, I really love Eugene Peterson, respect him a great deal. But if you take that title in a vacuum, a long walk in the same direction, we're going to do the same thing for a long time. That's what we got. <laughs> so um, Kevin is on sabbatical, probably laughing about this, and I'm here speaking with you. So we're going to get started, and it's going to be awesome. Um, so here's the thing. I think probably if we took 10 seconds, we could all establish several different aspects of self-discipline in our minds, right? In a society where success, success and wealth and aesthetics and status is widely appreciated, people kind of know that to get to some of these things, self-discipline is necessary. But um, I want to take just a second and ask the question, what is it exactly? I think we, it's one of those things where we all kind of know, but putting some words around it, putting a definition to it kind of sharpens the image um, and makes it a little bit easier to approach. So I looked it up, and here is the definition that I found. It's two parts. Self-discipline is the ability to exercise restraint over one's feelings, impulses, and desires, and the ability to pursue what one thinks is right despite temptations to abandon it. Kind of wordy, but again, um, I think pretty important to kind of put words to it. So um, we're going to discuss several elements of this, but first I want to do a quick exercise. Take out your phones. Really, honestly, take out your phones. <laughs> Jake, did you just start dancing because you could take out your phone in church? <laughs> okay, take out your phones, and I want you to create a new note or an email or whatever works for you so you can type freely. Um, in your note, I want you to identify three to four accomplishments that you are most proud of in your life. just want you to list them out, write them down. Um, these can be career-oriented, relational, athletic, related to any sort of hobby, personal growth, whatever they are, three to four of your favorite, kind of most proud accomplishments. Go ahead. Um, so now that you have these accomplishments listed out, what I'd like you to do is underneath one of those, each of those bullet points, I want you to just, like, maybe it's a sentence or a couple phrases, but what were the things that was required of you to get to these accomplishments? Okay, what were the things that you had to do habitually to get to these accomplishments? So, like, if one of your proud moments was that you ran a marathon, one of the things that you had to habitually do probably was run several miles a day for six days a week for six months, right? So write those steps underneath each one of those accomplishments. Okay, and then when you are done with that, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit uncomfortable. I want you to share this list with two or three people around you. And I know that a lot of times 
people don't like sharing things that they're proud of. It feels like bragging. But you can blame it on me. I asked you to do it. Okay. So take two to three minutes. Share out this list with several people around you. Go. Okay. So kind of keep those accomplishments in your head um, and the steps to, uh, that it took you to get there and kind of what, you're, uh, what the people around you shared. Um, I want to share uh, something that I find to be really impressive. Um, we're going to watch a quick video clip. It's of a person that I think we all know and deeply respect uh, and really um, can appreciate this person. Honestly, just doing something amazing, I think uh, we'll draw a lot of inspiration from it. So um, it's about three minutes. Go ahead and just enjoy this video clip together with us. So like I said, great American folk hero, Forrest Gump, uh, just doing amazing things. I, it's pretty, um, just pretty funny to me when he says that last line, they just couldn't believe I was running for no particular reason, right? And I would say, uh, while that's hilarious, it's probably an outlier. I think most people who undertake something of that magnitude, or even significantly less magnitude than that, uh, choose to do something like that with a why. Right? With, a, with a significant why behind it. Right? Someone chooses to run a marathon um, because they want to change a lifestyle, maybe become more healthy. Uh, somebody chooses to uh, change a diet because they had a relative who had a, a heart condition, wanted to clean things up. Somebody chooses to go back to school because they want to increase their quality of life and uh, can do so by undertaking a new career. So this will be the last time I ask you to do this, but I want you to look at your list one more time. And on that list, I want you to identify the why behind at least one of those things that you accomplished. What was your why? And this may be something that you hadn't considered yet, but give yourself a moment because I think, like I said, when we have these significant things that we do and that we accomplish, there's usually a significant why behind it. And knowing that why, I think, is where the real meat of this is. So um, once you've identified a why, very quickly, 30 seconds, go ahead and tell the person next to you that you told before what the why was. Kind of give them a, a window into your life. All right. So like I said before, I think um, the why in the equation is critical. The why oftentimes is what determines whether or not something, an undertaking will be successful, right? Oftentimes, uh, let's say that um, someone decides they want to run to become healthy. Okay. A lot of times, like a New Year's resolution type thing. Sometimes that's successful, sometimes it's not. But if you sign up for a half marathon four months from now, oftentimes... That's way more successful because the why is more imminent and more pressing, right? Um, this is what I'm talking about, looking at motivation behind something. And we're going to transition to self-discipline in Scripture. And what I would say is the interesting thing about self-discipline as we look at it in Scripture, specifically in Proverbs today, is that it forces us kind of to completely reevaluate how we look at self-discipline and the why behind it or what from Scripture the, the why should be. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Proverbs 3. We're going to be reading verses 19 to 23. It'll also be up on the screen. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. Now the author turns to us. My child, do not let these escape from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and prudence, and they will be the life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. So two key, key points here to notice. First, uh, the author is talking about wisdom and prudence. 
Okay, in this case, the word prudence carries this self-discipline undertone, kind of carries that with it. Um, and so the author is basically saying that the one who practices self-discipline, along with the other aspects of wisdom, um, will be guided well in life and will be successful. In other words, it's socially and culturally profitable to practice self-discipline. Now, I, I'm not up here to do a health and wealth prosperity gospel, but I do think that we can all readily acknowledge that a degree of self-discipline in life can be helpful culturally and socially. But the second reason that wisdom and self-discipline are significant, I would say, is larger and more important. So in verses 19 and 20, we see that the author is claiming that it's actually through wisdom and understanding that God created the universe. And I would say that this, this takes things up a notch, right? This provides a bit more significance. The author then tells us to pay attention. Do not let these things escape from your sight and practice them. And the implication here is that as we practice them, we're doing so because God practices them. So given this scripture, we can say that by seeking to practice wisdom, specifically here we're going to talk about self-discipline, that we actually become more like our creator, right? That it's not only socially profitable, but it's actually spiritually profitable. So let's kind of harken back to the why behind the things we do, right? Like I said, it's socially profitable to live with self-discipline in your job. Even if say you feel like your job has no, you don't feel a great deal of purpose in your job, right? But if you practice this self-discipline, you show up on time, you work hard, uh, there's social benefits of that. You get paid, you're in the respect of your employers, perhaps you get promoted, right? These are helpful. But what I think we find in Proverbs actually raises the stakes because your self-discipline at work is, and now we can kind of consider a higher calling, shaping you into the best version of yourself, um, and I would say the version that God has created you to be. And I would say the same thing can be said for other portions of our life as well. Um, both, you know, more important, less important. But when we practice self-control and self-discipline in our diet, in our budget, in exercise, in our knitting class, quilting, or, or any section of life where you have to be consistent and sometimes you have to overcome something like, ah, I don't want to go today. That this could be profitable and allows us to lean into this process where God shapes us, right? We go back to our, our definition of self-discipline. When we learn over time to exercise restraint over our impulses, emotions, and desires and make a decision out of self-discipline, we not only receive the social benefit, but the added spiritual benefit. Now, to all the doers out there, we're nodding in agreement, saying, yeah, self-discipline check off my list, I can do my stuff, I can be consistent, right? Hold on just a second. To grow into the best version of ourselves, like I said, who God created us to be, this works and functions best when it's in participation with the Lord. I think we all know those people who can go and go and go and go, and they have a self-discipline that is borderline aesthetic. Uh, but I think we can also quickly remember people that live that way for a while and then burn out and get exhausted for, you know, they need whatever, 24 hours or 48 hours to totally recharge because they've just laid down on their bed in a heap. So in the midst of discussing this self-discipline, we need to pause and ask the question, how is this practice most effective and made sustainable? Ken Boa says that for spiritual transformation to truly take place, discipline and dependence must go hand in hand. We must ask the Spirit to lead this transformation that comes from self-discipline so that it's both sustainable and effective. 
So how do we do that? How do we ask God to guide the self-discipline in our life so that it's fruitful, not just a reliance on our own willpower, which is a recipe for burnout? I think probably it looks a little bit different for everyone, um, but I would argue that there are three core elements. The first is intentional restorative practice. The second is intentional awareness. And the third is intentional community. And we'll talk a little bit about each. Intentional restorative practices are the things that we do to refresh ourselves. These are the things that bring life to your soul. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, ooh, not really sure what that is, here's a starting place. Ask yourself, if I had three to four hours of completely unoccupied time where I wasn't allowed to accomplish tasks, complete a to-do list, or check something off my list, or go to the grocery store, or whatever, what would I do? If it was meant to restore you, right? And then the second part of that question is, how would you draw God into that, or how can you draw God into that? Now, for some of us, that's like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I would do. I'd go for a long bike ride. Maybe I'd listen to um, some music while I'm going, take some time for prayer, whatever. For others of you, you're like, oh man, three to four hours. It's a long time to be twirling my thumbs or walking around. But I think that evaluating how you practice restoration um, is critical to making self-discipline actually sustainable, right? And there's lots of different ways to do this, and it's going to be different for each person. Some people like to walk or hike or ride bikes. Um, Others like to have a cup of coffee on the porch or journal or maybe music plays into um, how they refresh themselves. We see in the Gospels that uh, Jesus would retreat from the crowds for a long period of time of being by himself and and in prayer. Um, And like I said, probably different for everybody. But my hunch is that two things are usually true. That at least a degree of this is done by yourself. And that there's some sort of interaction with the Lord. Now the goal of this time is that it fills you with the Spirit. And that you leave it feeling refreshed and ready to tackle the things in front of you that demand discipline. If we make room for the Spirit to be a participant in our lives, then we gain an opportunity to be more like Christ through the Spirit rather than trying to practice what things we perceive Christ to be by our sheer will, which honestly is just a recipe for burnout. Through this, we allow the Spirit to be uh, completely transformative, even if it's bit by bit. Now, the second thing on the list is intentional awareness. If the intentional restorative practice is to be a time to fill you up with the Spirit. The awareness is an opportunity to pay attention to the Spirit while you participate in your day-to-day life, while you participate in the things that require discipline of you, okay? As a simple example, if you walk into your spin class and the only thing you're thinking about is the workout that you're going to crush, instead, what if you change that? You bring an intentional awareness to it and you just say something simple like, Lord, is there a bike you want me to sit on today? It doesn't have to be dramatic, right? We're not talking about magic bullets here, just simple things to reframe our awareness. And maybe through this, you crush your workout, but you also talk to somebody who becomes a new friend, or you rekindle a relationship, or you help somebody through something in the midst of your workout. Maybe uh, as you're going through your budget with your spouse, you can ask the question, um, how do we stop in the midst of this and show a degree of gratitude for the things that God's blessed us with, right? Then it becomes not just a task, but it becomes an opportunity for the Spirit to speak into your life and to remind you how fortunate we are, right, and where this goodness comes from, okay? Let's think about work. 
I think this gratitude can go a long ways uh, for a theology of work. Are there checkpoints throughout your day at work that you can create that allow you to focus on the Spirit rather than merely moving through the tasks of the day? If you're like me, there's plenty of days where I go to work because my alarm went off and I know I got to go, so I'm going to go, right? I love my job. There's a degree of self-discipline that goes into getting there, right? But if you can create momentary checkpoints on the way to work, uh, maybe alarm on your phone goes off halfway through the day, where you can kind of reframe this and remind yourself that this work is actually good, and it's through this self-discipline of going to this that God actually transforms me. Um, you can bring a much more fulfilling amount of, uh, of satisfaction to your work. And I would say maybe it allows you to be a bit more generous with that coworker that drives you crazy. Or maybe it allows you to go just a little bit further in how, uh, how much effort and the kind of completeness you put into your job, even if your boss wouldn't notice the difference. We see in Colossians 3 that Paul actually says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart. For it is Christ who you are serving. He's talking in the context of work in that letter. And again, through all these things, as we practice these small things, we create an awareness and we create the opportunity for the Spirit to slowly transform us. And then finally, the third thing is intentional community. From the beginning of Scripture in Genesis to the end of Scripture in Revelation, we see both God and humanity engaged in community. The Hebrew word that's used for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim. It's actually a plural. In Genesis 1.26, the text says, Then God said, Let us create humankind. Let us create humankind. Okay, an early nod here to Trinita Trinitarian theology and the relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Son. God exists in community. Soon after the first man's creation, God said it's not good for man to be alone. He wanted him to live in the context of community. The end of time in Revelation is similar. In the, new, in the New Jerusalem, after God has righted all of the wrongs, the Creator actually lives with His people in the city, existing in community together. In between Genesis and Revelation, over and over and over again, we see God calling His people to live in community, to encourage, support, challenge, laugh, and live life authentically together. Whatever types of self-discipline you participate in or take on in the future, my encouragement would be to participate with community. In simple examples, it's much harder to blow off an early morning workout or study session if you're meeting somebody. And I would say once you get there, it's way more fun when you're with other people. Similarly, if you know that you have a hard time exercising restraint over one aspect of your emotions or over a particular set of temptations, ask your community to support you to come alongside you, to encourage you, to call you out, to participate in this with you. There's great wisdom in the often quoted Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Leaning into this aspect of community is really helpful in the Christian life. Now, if, there, if you don't have relationships like this, I can say that the vulnerability that it takes to ask somebody to come alongside with you um, and participate with you can be a little bit threatening, a little bit intimidating. But I can also say that relationships deepen quickly when you give vulnerability because oftentimes people respond with vulnerability. And when vulnerability is shared in the midst of community, the relationships that are formed there I think can be really honoring of God and really honoring of what we're called to do. So, 
to bring our time to a close, I want to remind us that self-discipline is not only something to participate in because it's a societal good, but rather something to take on because it moves us into spiritual transformation. The Father values self-discipline and sees it as a way to shape us. And as we learn to view every element of self-discipline, both self-control and the discipline to move forward towards a goal as a spiritual good, we need to remember that this transformation functions best when we invite the Spirit to participate, to restore us, and to teach us to be more aware. Finally, let's remember, like all elements of our shared life together, God calls us to practice self-discipline in the context of community. I want to go off script just briefly here and mention one of the things that Russ mentioned at the beginning of the service. That quote that he used from Nelson Mandela, where you don't learn, excuse me, you don't born, you're not born hating someone, that hate is something that's learned, right? I think oftentimes when we pray for situations like the one in Charlottesville, we're praying for transformation and change to come to people who are practicing bigotry and practicing racism. But just like it takes time for someone to learn something wrong, it also takes time to unlearn something. I think most of us could identify with that, though not in that context. And so rather than talking about a sterile form of self-discipline that only applies to working out in your budget, I think that we have to be considerate of the fact that self-discipline can actually move in a way that changes hearts over time. On the flip side of that, for all of us sitting here, without self-discipline, our impulse, when we think back to our definition, our impulse is to respond to that hate with hate. Right, to, to denigrate people that would practice racism because it's not the right thing to do and their posture is incorrect. That's true. I would agree. Their posture is incorrect and it's not the right thing to do. It's vile and it's evil. But if we only respond with our first impulse and we only respond with hate, then we perpetrate the same thing that they're perpetrating. So the self-discipline that it requires for us to practice restraint over our impulses and over our emotions is a necessary part of our Christian walk in response to things like this. And so again, not just about budget, not just about exercise, not just about work, right? But about social good, and through this social good, about spiritual good. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, for giving us the opportunity to be changed by you through self-discipline. Remind us, Lord, during the times that we take on discipline on our own, that it needs to be done with your spirit and with others. Keep us refreshed and make us aware of the ways that you can move in us and with us in our daily life. We're so grateful for you, and we love you. Amen. I want us to uh, pause for about 30 seconds, and uh, I think anytime we dig into the scriptures, and this morning going into the wisdom literature and Proverbs again, I think we have to ask the question, uh, Spirit, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do about it? Uh, it's easy for us to just enter into a situation, hear something, go, yep, the great thought. You can tell you put a lot of time in studying to that, encouraging, and then walk out, and then decide to really do nothing about it. 
So if we could put those three kind of points at the end, three applicational ways in which we can live out uh, this self-discipline or control. Um, I would encourage you, and I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to think on it. Figure out which one of those the Spirit is asking you to lean into. It could be simply asking, what are the restorative things I need to do in my life to give me pause, Sabbath, rest, so that I can re-engage with discipline? Or maybe in that second area, to, to be constantly aware of Spirit, where are you moving in this situation? Whether it's work or friends or family. And then for that last one, uh, who is it that God is inviting me to walk alongside of? Or who should I ask to come in on my journey to help me in this area of discipline or this area of faith? All right, so I'll give you about 30 seconds to think on it, and then we'll close in prayer. If you would stand with me, we are going to, I'm going to read um, a verse out of the letter of Jude, and uh, this doxology in Jude will be our benediction this morning. New community, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week. I'd encourage you to talk with Greg on the way out. And if, uh, if you're interested in gathering to pray uh, for our country, uh, we'll be meeting in the chapel.